0: We're in John 4, and I couldn't pass up uh, some verses that we kind of skimmed last week without treating them in a bit more depth. So we're going to go back over verses 23 and 24. There's an outline in your bulletin. There's printed. There are printed messages at both exits you can grab, and those are online as well. And then the audio are online. Uh, We're just going to cover today verses 23 and 24, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up with verses 27 down to the end of this story of the uh, Samaritan woman in verse 42. Um, Reading from the New American Standard Bible, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Years ago now, when uh, the billionaire Howard Hughes died, his company's uh, public relations director asked the casinos in Las Vegas, where, as you probably know, Hughes owned a bunch of of casinos there. Well, he asked them if they would give a minute of silence out of respect to Hughes. So they complied, and for this uncomfortable moment, if you've ever, uh, I hope you've never uh, frequented them as customers, but if you've ever walked by those places, you know the cacophony of noise from the slot machines and the, everything going on, it all fell eerily silent, and people in there looked nervously at each other as they clutched their coins and waited for things to uh, finish up. And then after this uncomfortable minute, the pit boss looked at his watch and said, okay, roll the dice, he's had his minute. That was his respect. Well, sometimes I wonder if we may not treat God the way that those gamblers in Las Vegas treated Howard Hughes. We were busy all week doing our thing. We interrupt our busy schedule. We rush into church. We give God his hour. We rush out the door and get back to doing things we, frankly, would rather be doing otherwise. John MacArthur, I think, was certainly correct, and uh, encourage you to read this book, but he titled his book on worship, The Ultimate Priority. Worship is our ultimate priority. Uh, God created us so that we would worship Him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has it right when it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and Enjoy Him forever, or as John Piper uh, modifies it, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's how we glorify God, is when we are delighted in Him. Uh, It's no accident that the longest book in the Bible is a book of praise and worship, the book of Psalms. And when you get to the final, the grand finale in the Bible, the book of Revelation... You find the angels and the, the elders and all of the people there, the redeemed saints, falling on their faces and worshiping our God. And since worship is going to be our ceaseless activity and our, our greatest joy in heaven, we need to start practicing now and get ready for what we will be doing perfectly throughout all eternity. Let me give you a few definitions of worship um, John MacArthur, in that same book, defines it. Worship is our innermost being, responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as He has revealed Himself. That is a good definition. He uh, shortens it in another place to a little simpler definition that's easier to remember, and that is simply that worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that He is. Um, Here's a classic definition of worship by William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, He says, "...to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Um, My definition is not nearly so eloquent. In fact, I hesitated even putting it in here. But as I've thought about it, worship is an inner attitude and feeling of, of awe, of reverence, gratitude, and love toward God. And the reason I put it in here is it seems to me in the Bible worship always results when we realize who God is and at the same time who we are. And I think you can demonstrate that throughout a number of texts in the Bible. Someone gets a glimpse of God instantly. They recognize, oh my goodness, I am undone like Isaiah. And, and worship is what happens when we see who God is and who we are. John MacArthur also gives a helpful clarification. He says, Worship, by the way, is not music. Worship is loving God. Worship is honoring God. Worship is knowing God for who He is, adoring Him, obeying Him, proclaiming Him as a way of life. Music is one way we express that adoration. And I think that's a helpful clarification because we need to understand that worship is not just the hour we give it here on Sunday, but worship is to be all in all that we do. You remember in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so, All of our life is to have this Godward focus to be permeated with this sense of God's majesty and God's glory so that whether you're mowing your yard or whether you're sitting in church, there should be this heart of worship that is growing in you as you adore and honor and worship God for who he is. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus' words to worship, and these have to be some of the most profound words on worship in all of the Bible, occur in the context of his bearing witness to this pagan Samaritan woman as he seeks to bring her to faith in himself. Uh, You wouldn't think that when you're talking to somebody about salvation, you would get into a discussion on worship. And yet, she brings it up, Uh, she asks an implicit question. It's stated as a statement in verse 20, but it's basically saying, well, we worship here and you worship there. The implicit question is, which way is right? And Jesus uses it to zero in on uh, the aim of the gospel. And the aim of the gospel is to turn sinners into worshipers. That's what the gospel is all about. To take someone like this woman who is multiply immoral, and turn her into a true worshiper of the living God. And we learn here that since God is seeking true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth, then we should make it our priority to become such worshipers. Uh, Jesus tells this woman in verse 23 that there is a significant transition that is about to take place. He says, but an hour is coming, and then he clarifies, and now is, because he's present, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And Jesus' presence is what changed the old covenant way of worship to the new covenant way of worship. And in the old covenant, place was significant. God ordained that all Jewish males had to appear before him in Jerusalem three times a year for the great three great feasts of the Jewish calendar. The new way that Jesus inaugurates is, we've already seen in chapter 2, Jesus is the new temple. Uh, Jesus is the one we worship and in whom we worship. And we as believers are being built into a holy temple in the Lord, not the building, but the believers, the people, and so where we gather to worship is really secondary, rather whom we worship and how we worship him is primary. Now, unbelievers, such as this Samaritan woman at this point, is still unbelieving, I think she comes to faith in just a moment, but unbelievers often have this mistaken idea, well I went to this church building And uh, I went through the rituals this week, so I'm good to go. In other words, for them, worship is an external thing. They went to a cathedral or a a temple or a synagogue or a, a mosque or whatever, and they go through the ritual, but the problem is they have not dealt with God on the heart level. They haven't repented of their sins, sins of thought and word and deed, Uh, And so Jesus here zeroes in and he tells this Samaritan woman, whether you worship in Gerizim or in Jerusalem is really inconsequential. Uh, The important thing is that you become a true worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. Three things I want to bring out from these crucial verses on worship. The first that is significant is God is seeking such worshipers. Isn't that remarkable? God is seeking such worshipers. That's His intent. Uh, Don't know if you've ever read it. It's worth wading through. And I say wading through because it's not easy. Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise called The End for Which God Created the World. And John Piper incorporated it with some helpful notes in his book God's Passion for His Glory. But Edwards argues that the reason God created the universe is His glory. And He demonstrates why and what that means. And so God now is seeking worshipers who will bring Him glory, who glorify Him in all that they do. Uh, not just Sunday for an hour, but all week long in everything we do we are to become true from the heart worshipers of God. And if you aren't worshiping God throughout all the week, then really Sunday isn't going to be much. I mean, we'll come in here and the worship's going to fall flat if none of us have been worshiping God. Sunday ought to just be kind of the overflow of a whole week in which we are exulting in God, honoring Him, and you begin that process, if you haven't, like this Samaritan woman needed to do right here, By repenting of your sin, putting your trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit causes you to be reborn. He comes to dwell within you. And then, and only then, can you begin to worship God in spirit and in truth. And you do that as you bring every thought and word and deed subject to Jesus and His Lordship. Now, two things to note under this head. And the first one is, The the fact that God is seeking true worshipers implies that there is such a thing as being a false worshiper. Being a false worshiper. False worshipers either worship something or not someone unless it's a demon, but something other than the living and true God, or false worshipers attempt to worship the true God, but they do it in a way that actually dishonors him. So, one of those two things. Uh, Either way, I might point out, sincerity is not the only criterion for being a true worshiper. Now, hear me carefully. All true worshipers of God are sincere, but all sincere worshipers are not true. In other words, sincerity is a necessary condition to be a true worshiper, but it's not sufficient. The reason I say that is, for example, there are true uh, worshipers, I mean sincere worshipers, let me say, not true, sincere worshipers of Allah. There are sincere worshipers of Krishna and Buddha and the Mormon God and the Jehovah's Witness God, but they are not true worshipers because they're worshiping false gods. They are not worshiping the living and true God who has revealed himself to us in the Bible. Also, there are Christians, born-again Christians, who are sincere, but really their worship is man-centered. It calls attention to the performers, to the entertainment world is the model for how they do it, and uh, all of that, and, and God is kind of on the sidelines, but really it's the performers on the stage who get all of the glory and and the center is on them. Or on the other end of the Christian spectrum, there are some who go through these ancient liturgies every week and perform the rituals, so they're sincere, but they are not true in that they are not worshiping God from the heart. They're, they're just going through the rituals, and they're a lot like the Jewish leaders that Jesus uh, spoke of in Matthew 15:8. And he was citing Isaiah 29:13 when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So they go through the rituals. They did all the stuff. You look at them and say, wow, that was pretty good. But God looks on the heart. And uh, so we need to be careful not to fall into these cat- this category of being a false worshiper. The second thing to note here is the fact that God is seeking true worshipers means that this then is of utmost importance. It's got to be our priority. If it's God's priority that he's seeking worshipers, it should be ours. Now, in verse 24, you'll note that Jesus says that these true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Um, in other words, the word must means it's a necessity. A. W. Pink in his exposition of John points out that there are three musts in John. In John three, verse seven, you must be born again. In John three, fourteen, Jesus said that it, that the Son of Man must be lifted up, and then here in chapter four and verse twenty four. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The first must concerns the Holy Spirit who effects the new birth in us. Uh, the second concerns the Son who was lifted up on the cross. And the third concerns the Father who is the object of our worship. And Pink points out that the order is important. First, you must be born again, and you are born again by trusting in the Son of Man who is lifted up on the cross, and then and only then can you worship God properly. And so the first point here is simply that God is seeking you as a true worshiper of Him. And if you're here and you've never come to faith in Christ and put your trust in Him, you must begin there. You can't begin to worship God until you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, and He comes to live in you when you uh, trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Uh, It's also very possible that some of us here have trusted in Christ, but it's so easy, I confess it's easy, to drift off course and to get caught up with other stuff. And you look back on your week and you think, I can't even think of a time when I was actually just caught up in worship of God during the week. And if that's so, then I trust that this text here will bring us all back uh, to this as our priority because God wants each and every one of us to be true worshipers of Him. The second main lesson here, then, is that these true worshipers that the Father seeks worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus repeats it twice so that we don't miss it. Let me read the text again and notice how he emphasizes in spirit and truth twice. He says an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. Then he explains God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and truth. So, to be uh, true worshipers, Jesus says, we have to worship two ways in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit without truth means you're worshiping false gods. Everyone in the cults, everyone in false religions may worship in spirit, but they're not worshiping in truth. On the other hand, to worship in truth without spirit, you've fallen into what we would call dead orthodoxy. Yeah, you're worshiping the true God, you're going through the motions, but your heart is not in it. And so we need to worship in spirit and truth. And it's very clear here, the Father then must be the focus of our worship. So three things here to note. First of all, we should worship the Father who Jesus says is spirit. Three times Uh, He tells this Samaritan woman that it is the Father that we are to worship in verse 21. And then two times in verse 23, he mentions the Father. Um, He explains to her also that God is spirit. Now, we looked at that last week, so I'm only going to touch on it. But spirit is God's essential nature. It means he is not material He does not inhabit a material or physical body. That means He is invisible to human eyes. And it also means He is not confined to one location at a time. He is omnipresent as Spirit. Uh, He has existed before all time as Spirit. That is, before there was ever anything material, God is and was and always has been Spirit. When we are born again, we become spiritual people in the sense we get a human spirit and we now can commune with God in the spirit and we can worship Him in the spirit. But because God is omniscient, or I mean omnipresent, by the way, we can worship God then anywhere and know that He is there with us uh, because He is an omnipresent spirit. Now, through Jesus, we come to know then God as our Father, whom we worship. Why does Jesus emphasize to this Samaritan woman that God is the Father? Um, the most helpful thing I saw on this was from John Piper. And he suggests three reasons that Jesus emphasizes the Father to this Samaritan woman. First of all, Uh, God is the father of the Samaritans. If you've noticed in the conversation with this woman, she has emphasized our fathers. In verse 10 or 11, she mentioned, excuse me, verse 12, our father Jacob. And uh, then in verse 20, she mentions our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And so Jesus shifts the focus and says, let me tell you about your true father, the heavenly father. Whom you are to worship. A second reason is that Jesus is pointing out that fathers have spiritual children. Uh, That's what a father is. A father has children. You're not a father till you have children. And the heavenly father is all about bringing spiritual children to birth through those who believe in Jesus, as we saw in chapter 1. As many as received him, to them he gave the, the right to become children of God. And so that implies that we have a personal relationship with God and that's at the heart of worshiping Him in spirit. That it's a heart relationship. A third reason Jesus brings up the Father is that God is the Father in a unique sense of Jesus, His unique Son, uh, who has always been the Son of the Father. Now when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, It does not mean that He came into being at a point in time. That there was a time when He was not and then God begat Him and He became the Son. No, that's not the point of it. What it means is Jesus shares the same essential nature as the Father, just as a son shares the nature of His earthly Father. So Jesus has always shared the nature of His Father. And Jesus is always the Son of God. There never was a time when He was not the Son of God. But it means, for our way of thinking, He always is the same as God. Let me show you some verses that back this up. In John 5.18, John says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So the Jews understood when Jesus said, God is my Father, you're claiming to be the same as God. Exactly. Or in John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Or in John 17.5, Jesus is praying there right before the cross. And he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so before the world was created, Jesus and the Father shared the same glory, which means Jesus is the same nature as the Father. They have always been equal as God. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus was expecting this um, unbelieving Samaritan woman to catch all the nuances of the Trinity in this initial dialogue with her. I think he was trying to bring her into a personal relationship with the Father. But I do believe the Holy Spirit inspired this text for us so that we would come to worship God as triune. Um, In verse 23 of chapter 5, Jesus says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son for this reason, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And uh, you can share this one with the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come knocking. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So if you do not elevate Jesus to the same level as the Father and give Him equal honor, you are dishonoring God the Father, Jesus says. It's a remarkable claim. And so true worship then worships the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Then the second thing, not only is is God uh, the Father whom we should worship, Is he spirit? But also we should worship the Father in spirit. Um, What does Jesus mean? Well, I believe primarily to worship in spirit means to worship from within. To worship from the heart is the idea of it. And it is opposed to the external, formal, ceremonial, ritualistic kind of religion that predominates around the world with people whose hearts are not right with God. And so the most important factor in becoming a true worshiper of God is to guard your heart before the Lord. The Lord knows your heart. And uh, John Calvin puts it this way. He says, Worship in the Spirit is the inward faith of the heart that produces prayer, purity of conscience, and self-denial leading to obedience. Now, Hear me carefully on this. I want to try to say this balanced. In part, as I indicated in my definition of worship, I believe that true worship in spirit is emotional. Now, I'm not saying that we crank it up. It's possible to crank up fake emotions or just crowd, you know, fervor. Or the music's got this beat that just moves you. And you could get the same emotional high going to a rock concert or you know, being in an enthusiastic 4th of July parade. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, but at the same time, when you focus your mind on the truth of who God is in all of His glory, in all of His splendor, in all of His majesty... And as I said, then you instantly realize who you are as a sinner deserving of his judgment and wrath. It should at times move your emotions. And if it doesn't, you need to pause and say, what's wrong? Let me use an analogy. My marriage to Marla is not built on emotion. It is built on a commitment that we made to each other many years ago, almost 40 years ago now, where we said I do to each other. Okay, that's the basis of our marriage, but if I never feel love for her, something's wrong. As I think about her and what she means to me and all that she is to me and our many years of of relationship together and the friendship we share and all of that, it should cause my heart to well up where I feel love for her and I express it. That's the key, too. See, I can sit across the room and think, yeah, I love her, and she doesn't hear it. It means a lot more when I go over and put my arms around her and whisper in her ear, I really love you. Uh, That is a way she can feel it. And again, I hope you see the connection between our worship with God. There are people who sit very prim and proper and go, yeah, I love God. Yeah, great. Nobody could tell it by looking at you and we are to express our love for God. Uh, Again, be careful. I'm not saying you crank this up. But I am saying if it never flows out of your heart, you need to do a heart check and say, what is wrong? How come my heart is so cold toward a God who loves me so much? And it ought to move us. So I hope you get the balance I'm expressing there. And then... Jesus says we need to worship the Father in truth. And that is to say God has revealed Himself to us in one place and one place only, in the Bible, the Word of Truth, and in the center person of the Bible, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to worship God in truth means that we worship God for who He is in the majesty of all of His attributes that are revealed to us in all of Scripture. And we need to be careful here again to have the balance of Scripture. I have talked to people, Christians, oh, I just love the love of God. Yeah, what about His holiness and His righteousness and His justice? Well, no, I'm not into that. Then you don't love God because God is both, you know? And we should love God for His kindness. Oh, that is wonderful. But Paul also says, behold the kindness and severity of the Lord. We should worship Him for His severity. We should worship Him for His sovereignty. We should worship Him for His goodness. As Job says, we should worship Him for what He gives, and we should worship Him for what He takes away. It's a remarkable passage. We worship Him for all of His ways. And the Bible is our only guide for worshiping Him in truth. And, As I say, worship in spirit flows out of worshiping Him in truth. It is as we put our minds on what the Bible reveals about God that the Spirit of God quickens it in our spirit and we go, oh, wow. And our inner person then responds, so we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, then the final point is just since God then is seeking such worshipers, true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth, make it your priority then to become such a true worshiper of God. And I want to apply this in three directions. First of all, if I'm not growing as a true worshiper of God, I need to recognize that I am not in line with what God is seeking to do in my life. You know, if you want to write it down as your purpose statement in life, have something in there about worshiping or glorifying God. That should be in there. That's why He created us all. And so it's not just restricted to a few minutes here on Sunday. What I'm saying is, this is a 24-7 kind of thing. All week long, we are to be worshiping God. The the verse I referred to earlier in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, eating or drinking... Do all to the glory of God. The context there is relationships, both with unbelievers and with believers. And so that means that in our relationships, we are to be worshipers of God. We're to glorify God in how we relate to other believers, starting at home, by the way, and to unbelievers, how we deal with people in the world should be an act of glorifying God, of worshiping Him. Uh, The Bible also says that, and and I have verses for all this in the notes, I just don't have time to turn to all of them, but it says that missionary or evangelistic efforts should be an act of worship, an offering to God. It says in the Bible that our giving should be a sacrifice, an offering to God of worship when we give, whether to missions or to the church or to uh, a fellow believer. It also says that our godly behavior should be an offering that is pleasing to God. So living in line with God's standards of holiness should be an act of worship. And then, of course, an attitude of praise and thanksgiving rather than grumbling should be, again, a sweet offering to God who has worked in our lives. And, So the point I'm making is just this. You can't live a worldly self-centered life all week long and then walk into church and become a worshiper. Worship in church should be the overflow of all of us throughout the week learning to exalt and glorify God in all of our circumstances, in all of the trials as well as the victories that we see. A second application of this, then, is if we're not growing as a worshiping church, then we're not in line with what God is seeking to do with this body. That is our goal. Let me ask you, why do you come to church? And if the answer honestly is, well, I come to get something out of it, you've got your focus in the wrong place. Now, I hope you do get something out of it. But that shouldn't be why you come. You should come saying, I want to come and offer up to God a sweet savor of lips to give thanks to His name. I want to praise and honor and glorify God so that He gets something out of it. Many years ago, uh, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard pointed out that often a congregation views itself as the audience And they view the the leaders on the stage, the worship leaders and the pastor, as the performers doing their thing on stage and that you're the audience. And uh, Kierkegaard pointed out that's the wrong perspective. He said the real audience is God and the congregation are the performers and the worship leaders and the pastor are kind of on the side in the in the wings and they're giving cues saying, come on, come on, you know, give your lines, worship God. But he pointed out God is the audience. And so when we gather for worship, it's not, it's not about us. It's about God. And our focus should be on God. Did I give you the heartfelt praise that you deserve for how wonderful you have been in my life and all of the blessings that you have given me? So that's our aim as a church. And then a third dimension of this is this. If we're not seeking to help others, both locally and globally, to become worshipers, then we're not in line with God's purpose. Um, John Piper, in his excellent book, Let the Nations Be Glad, begins like this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist... Because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And so his words apply not only to our foreign mission efforts, we're seeking to make worshipers out there in other countries, but also to our our evangelistic efforts here in the city. Our goal should be to turn... Pagans like this Samaritan woman, immoral people who have no really concept of who God is or what he's doing, to turn them into worshipers. That's what Jesus was doing with this woman is taking her, a raw pagan, living with a man out of uh, marriage and saying, you, God is seeking you to become a worshiper of him and bringing them to faith in Christ so that they do. Now, let me wrap it up, and I'm going to get in trouble here. This is where I go from preaching to meddling. But I'm going to give you seven practical suggestions, and I'm going to step on some toes, my own included, so we all need to learn. But here's seven practical suggestions on how to grow as a true worshiper. And these are not all there are. I just didn't have room for more. First of all, as I have emphasized in this message, make sure you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Savior and Lord. Uh, You cannot worship God if you do not believe in Jesus. And so I want to just begin there and say it. You, You don't worship God in order to earn or gain eternal life. You gain or get eternal life as a free gift, as we saw earlier in this discussion. Jesus repeatedly says, if you knew the gift of God, I would have given you eternal life. It's a gift, and you must receive it by faith in Jesus. Then, assuming that, secondly, establish a daily time alone with God in the Word and in prayer. And I cannot emphasize this too much. I really can't. If you're not doing this on a consistent basis, you will not grow to become a worshiper. I'll just say it that flat out. You have to have time with God. Worship is your response to the truth of God, which is in the Bible. His Word is truth. And if you're not feeding your brain on that truth, you aren't going to be a worshiper. Prayer also should be a response to the truth of God. I try to read every morning a psalm. This morning was in Psalm 31. And just pray that back to God as I read through it. And... um, The other parts of the Bible, too, are to be turned into prayer. So if you don't spend consistent time alone with God in the Word and in prayer, your soul is going to shrivel up and you will not become a worshiper. I can guarantee that. Thirdly, you need to eliminate all of the garbage from the world that hinders your growth in becoming a worshiper of God. If worship is our priority, then... Obviously, you clean out of your life the stuff that trips you up from getting to your priority. And the world constantly competes for our worship. It just bombards us daily with an ungodly mindset. Now, let me get real blunt here. If a TV show or a movie, you come away feeling defiled, then don't do it. Don't watch it. You know, that's a no-brainer. And yet, so many believers just sit glued to the television or they go to these raunchy movies and then they wonder, well, I wonder why I'm not red hot for the Lord. Uh, don't, Don't do it. Or if it crowds out your time with the Lord. And here, let me get really step on toes. If your computer or, may I say, your cell phone crowds out time with the Lord... You need to make some adjustments. I have seen people that are just glued to their devices. Walking down the street even, you know, doing their thing on their cell phone. And uh, I've seen some funny videos where they run into things walking down the street. But you gotta, you got to get your priorities right. And let me, again, get really blunt. If you're looking at porn on, on your device... You are in serious spiritual trouble. You need some help. I mean, you are in big, big trouble. Read Jesus' words in Matthew 5:27 to 30. You cannot glorify God with your body unless you flee immorality. And so if your goal is to glorify God, you've got to flee that stuff. I mean, get it out of your life 100 percent. You can't even let it in the door. Uh, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness because true worship is inseparable from being a godly person. Here's a fourth. Prepare your heart Saturday night for our corporate worship on Sunday morning. Now, I have an advantage. I have to be ready for Sunday morning. My survival depends on it. And uh, so Saturday night is sacred to me. I will not go to social events on Saturday night unless I can get out early. I'll go to the dinner next Saturday night for the boons, but I intend to leave early, and I told them that. I won't stay late. I have to get home and get my heart right with the Lord and go back over the message and make sure I'm applying it myself and praying over it and all of that. Now, you don't have to do that, and I'm not suggesting you do, but I am suggesting this. Uh, get home early enough on Saturday night that you can spend a few minutes just in prayer and, and ask God, God, tomorrow your people are gathering. And it's really, really, really important that we gather as worshipers and lift up the name of Jesus. And the enemy is going to be trying to distract and trying to cause all kinds of hindrances. God, would you just meet with us so that if anybody wandered in, they would know the living God is in their midst. And if we all would do that Saturday night, Sunday would come and we would be more prepared for our worship. Here's another way I'm going to meddle with you, okay? Put away distractions on Sunday morning and don't be a distraction to other worshipers. Here's where I'm really going to get to meddling. May I say don't read your bulletin during the singing? You're not worshiping if you're reading the bulletin, I'm guessing. And the singing is to worship. Don't read the bulletin during the sermon. You're not worshiping. You say, well, I didn't know the sermon was worship. It ought to be. I hope if you're hearing God's truth, you're drawn to see how great God is. I hope it moves your heart to worship once in a while. Um, Here's another thing. I know some of you, I'm getting old too, some of you have a medical condition and you need to go to the restroom during the service. I understand that. Just sit near the back or an exit where you don't have to step over 15 people and make a big disturbance to go out and come back in. Um, If you are thirsty during the service, stuff it, okay? You're not going to thirst to death between now and the end of the service to get up. And I've watched people get up, step over five people, go out, and I can see them. They go get a drink and they come back in and sit down. I'm saying you're being a distraction to others. Think about them. And you'll get over it, you know. Bring a water bottle if you have to, but don't interrupt worship. And the same if you have kids. I love kids and all of that, but if they're being a distraction to others, be sensitive. And there's an overflow room back there you can go to first hour. Uh, There are speakers in the hallway. All of that. Again, just be sensitive to other people, and don't be distracted yourself. Here's a sixth suggestion. Ignore the others around you the best you can, and remember that God is the audience again. And by this, there's a balance I'm talking about. On the one hand, you should be free to express yourself to the Lord in worship. And you'll remember the story in in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Samuel 6 where David is so carried away in his worship that he's dancing before the Lord when they're bringing the ark up and his wife is embarrassed. The guy's making a spectacle out of himself. And the significant thing in that story is God sides with David. God sides with David, not with his wife. That's the one hand. Here's the other hand. If you're so expressive that you're, you're the center of attention and everybody's looking at you, then you're out of balance there. So there is a decorum. Paul says all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So you're not to be so strung out that, you know, I've been in services where somebody is just down front literally dancing before the Lord and everybody else is kind of looking at them. You're distracting others. That's not right. On the other hand, loosen up and say, I don't care what others think. I love you, Lord, and I want to express my love to the Lord and be expressive to Him. I hope you get the balance. And then here's, here's a s- final suggestion. Spend some time worshiping God and His creation. Uh, now, most of us live in Flagstaff. We have an advantage. If you're from the valley, we feel sorry for you. And... Uh, You will have to uh, work hard at becoming a worshiper of God and his creation. I'm only partly kidding, but, um, you know, tonight is the Perseid meteor showers. Go outside for a while and look at the heavens that God spoke into existence. And watch those meteors and just go, Whoa, God is great. God is remarkable. And even the sunshine that we take for granted here comes up over 300 days a year, but the psalmist talks about it in Psalm 19, you know. It's a strong man coming out of his chamber and he runs his race across the sky. It's all poetic, but, you know, he's reveling in the light that God gives. Um, The flowers. You ever just look at a flower and go, what a miracle! And and may I say to you, evolution is the enemy of, of worship. Uh, It's a lie. It is a blatant lie of Satan that all this happened by sheer chance over billions of years. That did not happen. I guarantee you that did not happen. Uh, That is unscientific. It could not have happened that way by chance. The odds are against it. But the birds, the butterflies, even the bugs, you ever look at a little bug and just marvel at the design and how God made that thing, and you know, and what it's doing, and all of that. Um, your body—you ever just marvel at how fearfully and wonderfully you're made, and God created all of that for His glory? In Romans one, there, where Paul is indicting the ungodly world, he he makes the point that God has given evidence through what was made of His glory and His greatness and His power. But they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he says this, their sin is they did not honor God or give thanks. What he's saying is they didn't worship. And that's our priority. That is our ultimate priority. Dear Father, I pray that You would help us all. I struggle with this. I get so caught up with the world and all the stuff Help us all, Lord, to become worshipers of you in spirit and in truth. And if any are here without the Savior, Lord, open their eyes to see. There is evidence that you are an almighty creator. And you sent your Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world, that all would come to be worshipers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.